Well, a couple of things before I pray. I feel like I need to apologize for wafer quality. Um, doesn't get much more unleavened than cardboard. So uh, hopefully you taste the bitterness there of sin and the nastiness of sin. And that's followed by a sweet, sugary grape juice. So um, Also, um, I neglected to talk about... Um, why we're not passing the offering, obviously, because of distancing, we're not passing the offering. But if you came prepared to give, you can give uh, in the back, um, in the basket, in the back of the room. Let's pray together, and then we're going to get into Colossians 1. Father, we are grateful this morning for the opportunity to worship together, to sing, to pray, to read the scriptures, to enjoy each other's company, to see each other's faces. And now we come to see the one, to see the face of the one that we most need to seek, and that is our God. So, Lord, you're speaking now uh, through your word, by your Holy Spirit, to all of our hearts. And we pray that you would open us to receive all that you have for us this morning. Keep us attentive and alert and engaged as we meditate on this all-important passage, passage in Colossians 1 and what it means to live a life that is fully pleasing to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we do start a new summer sermon series this morning. It'll be about nine or ten weeks. Actually, our brother Heath Dame will be preaching the last sermon in the series, Lord willing. And, uh, but throughout the summer, we're going we're gonna to take up a, the subject of pleasing God and what it means to live a life pleasing to God. So we're going to be bouncing around various passages in the New Testament, always anchored in one particular text, but it's going to be a little bit more um, sporadic this summer. We won't be making our way through a book of the Bible. Lord willing, we'll start that in uh, later August or mid-August um, with the book of Revelation. So, But until then, we're going to be working through various passages in the New Testament that talk about the theme of pleasing God. I've entitled the sermon series, What God Wants, Pursue, Pleasing God by Pursuing His Will. So it may be helpful to, on the front end, to define what I mean by pleasing God. Well, let me give you this definition that's going to be the kind of operating definition throughout the sermon series. Here's what I mean by pleasing God. First, to bring God delight by being and doing what he desires. That's pleasing God. To bring God delight by being and doing what he desires. Now, Paul, in this particular passage in Colossians, uses the phrase pleasing God in the middle of verse 10, where he says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. So I think you can see there that pleasing God is also walking worthy. The, the, the words are, the phrases are synonymous. He says, I want you to please God, be fully pleasing to him by walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. This walking worthy idea is very common with Paul. He uses it again and again in his letters to the churches as an appropriate slogan for what it means to live the Christian life. So when Paul talks about living the Christian life, he thinks of pleasing God, he thinks of walking worthy of the Lord. He uses this phrase, walking worthy, in Ephesians 4.1, Philippians 1.27, 1 Thessalonians 2.12, and 4.1. He uses it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. So in no less than five letters does this theme of walking worthy or living fully pleasing to the Lord come up. So the question then becomes, 
What does it mean to live a life fully pleasing to God? What does it look like? What does it mean to live a life that's worthy of the gospel, that's worthy of being called a Christian, that's worthy of the King of King Jesus? What does that mean? How do we know? Well, thankfully, we're not left to our own distorted speculations when it comes to trying to figure out what it means to please God, since, first, since the first test we're going to look at teaches us exactly about that theme. So what we're going to see in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14, is four evidences or four tests by which we may measure whether we are living a life that's walking worthy of, our, walking worthy of the gospel and that's fully pleasing to God. So let's walk through those four tests this morning in verses 9 through 14 of Colossians chapter 1. First test, is my life bearing godly fruit? Is my life bearing godly fruit? We see this in Colossians chapter 1 verse 10. Look at what Paul says. He says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Now here's, here's what that means, to be walk worthy, to live fully pleasing, bearing fruit in every good work. Now, what does this mean? It's not apparent. He doesn't give an explanation. He doesn't say, by the way, here's what bearing fruit in every good work looks like. Let me give you a list. No, he just makes the statement. So we are left to try to understand what the statement means. Well, the good news is he's already used this phrase, bearing fruit, in this letter already. In the first 14 verses, he uses it twice. So let's look at the previous verse that he uses this phrase bearing fruit in, and that's in verse 6. He's talking about how the gospel came to the Colossians and how it was immediately received by them, how they believed it. And then he says in verse 6, which has come to you, that's the gospel, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So he says the gospel's like this seed that goes out and it, and it plants itself in people's hearts and then it begins bringing forth fruit. And so the gospel is what is bearing fruit in these Christians. But notice in verse 10, he says that they are then to bear fruit. So I don't think that those are inconsistent with each other. They overlap. It's as the gospel takes root in our lives and bears fruit in us, we begin to bear fruit in accord with that gospel. So what is some of the fruit that he sees in their life? Well, he says in verse 3, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. See, that's the fruit he's talking about. That's the fruit that the gospel produced. It produced faith and love. It produced faith in Jesus Christ and love for others. Let's take those two. So when Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, he wants them to bear fruit in every good work, I think what he means is he wants them to exhibit faith and love in everything they do. He wants that to be central, just as it was when the gospel came to them and bore fruit in their lives. He wants that faith and that love to increase and to be shaping everything that they do. So let's take those one at a time. Faith. Faith is so critical, brothers and sisters, to bearing fruit because we can't bear fruit without it. 
It's by being connected to Christ that we bear fruit. Remember John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5, where Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, we're the branches, unless it abides in the vine, that's Christ, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So there's faith being all important and bearing fruit. Paul says something similar in Romans chapter 7, verses 4 and 5. He says, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead, in order that you may bear bear fruit for God. See, it's by being united to Jesus Christ that we bear fruit for God. Jesus said it, Paul said it. Paul also said, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So faith is all critical for bearing fruit. We must be connected to Jesus Christ, relying upon him, looking to him, trusting in him, if we are going to bear fruit at all, since he is the vine and we are the branches. Second, love. Again, John chapter 15, verse 10, Jesus says, If you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love. John chapter 15, verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then verse 17 of that same chapter. These things I command you, that you love one another. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the commands of Jesus. And fulfilling the commands of Jesus is at least part of what it means to bear fruit. So therefore, bearing fruit means having faith in Jesus Christ... And it means loving other people. It means letting the love which we constantly receive from Christ as we abide in him flow through us and out to others for their benefit. Now, two other aspects of fruit bearing need to be emphasized as well in addition to faith and love. Now, they're not mentioned immediately here in in Paul's context of Colossians 1, but they're nonetheless emphasized in the Bible and I want to stress them to us. First of all, character change. Personal character change. Remember in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit, that is bearing fruit, the, the, the bearing fruit of the Spirit in our lives is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. So personal character change is key to bearing fruit. It's not just about trusting God and loving others. It's also about being changed by those two realities so that we become a faith-filled person and a loving person. Let me talk about each one of those fruit of the Spirit quickly. Love, selfless, sacrificial affection for God. Joy, the ability to take good cheer from the gospel. Peace, a sense of well-being. Patience, ability to endure through difficulty graciously. Slow fuse, long-suffering, not easily provoked. Kindness, a constant readiness to help, the extension of God's grace to those around us through practical actions of caring. Goodness, a willingness to be lavishly generous. Faithfulness, steadfast trustworthiness, reliability, loyalty, dependability, keeping your word. Gentleness, sweet temper and spirit toward God and others and the frustrations of life. Not prone to anger, but humble, sweet, and calm. Self-control, temperance and moderation, not given to excesses, restrained and disciplined and not ruled by passions, able to resist temptation. Now, we could take a whole sermon and discuss each one of those. I don't have time to do that, and neither is that my intent this morning. But I just want to stress that personal character change is a part of bearing fruit as well. Fourthly and finally, in addition to faith 
love, character, also evangelism. Taking the gospel to other people is in part of what bearing fruit is all about. Remember John chapter 15, verse 16? Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in my Father's name, he will give it to you. Now, what does Jesus by mean, go and bear fruit and your fruit will abide? Well, he makes it clear in John 4 what he means. When Jesus says, do not say, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see how the fields are already white for harvest. He who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. See, fruit for eternal life, in John chapter 4, verse 36, probably corresponds to the fruit that abides in John chapter 15, verse 16, where he says, I have appointed you to go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. So in other words, he's talking about winning other people to Christ, that that's part of what it means to be fruit-bearing. So for this first test, let's look at our lives. To live a life that's fully pleasing to God means to have a life that's marked by faith in Christ, that's marked by love for others, that's marked by growing character change as a result of Jesus' work in our lives and flows out in a desire to win others to Christ as well. So that's our first test. That's what it means to bear godly fruit. In every work, Jesus wants us to be faith-filled, loving, change, changed and changing people so that we can represent him and his gospel to a world that needs it. Test number two. Is my mind growing in the knowledge of God? Is my mind growing in the knowledge of God? Look at what Paul says again in Colossians 1 verse 10. He says, To walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and, here's our verse, increasing in the knowledge of God. So a life that's fully pleasing to God is not just one that's bearing fruit of faith, love, and change, and, or character change and evangelism, but rather is also a life that is growing in the knowledge of God. Now, what does that phrase mean, the knowledge of God? What does the knowledge of God entail? Well, look at Colossians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, where Paul uses this phrase, knowledge of God, again. It, just a little Bible study tip here. Whenever you encounter a, a passage of Scripture and you're trying to understand what that phrase means, see where else it's used in the letter first, and then let that perspective inform your interpretation because he probably means the same thing. He doesn't always mean the same thing, but sometimes he does. So you want to look immediately in the, in the letter to try to figure it out. Then you branch out to other par parts of Paul. Then you would branch out to other parts of the New Testament. So that's just an interpretive uh, 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 tip for you as you read the Bible and try to understand it. Very easy to do a word search on things like that on, on the, in, in the Bible. So Increasing in the knowledge of God, this, this idea is used in Colossians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, where Paul says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then he says in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 2, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord... So walk in him. So this idea of growing in the knowledge of God, 
I think has specific reference to growing in the knowledge of Christ. Who he is and what he's done for us. Is this not similar to what we read elsewhere in the Bible? Think of John 17 verse 3. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Or Philippians chapter 3 verses 7 through 10 where Paul says... Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Jeremiah chapter 9 says something similar in verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Here's what J.I. Packer says in Knowing God. He says, we are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. Disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and lose your soul. Look, increasing in the knowledge of God is the most practical thing ever. Growing in our understanding of who Christ is, there's nothing more practical than that. But our approach is very important. See, we can seek to gain knowledge for all different reasons, right? We can seek to increase in our understanding of all kinds of hobbies and things we enjoy and things we like to learn about. Some of you might enjoy history or science or whatever, just learning about different things or different aspects of your life. And you study these things and you try to... And they usually have some sort of like practical import, right? You don't just study something that you're not going to put to any use whatsoever. But sadly, when it comes to the study of God and the study of theology, which is the study of God, then we can have all kinds of mixed motives when it comes to things like that. So our approach to the study of theology is very important. I'm glad the Baldwins are here this morning because this, I pulled this section from my notes from the very class I teach in Serbia. So you guys are getting a little bit in this point. This is the very first lecture that I teach in Serbia, this, this little idea about why we increase in the knowledge of God. Because they're there to increase in the knowledge of God, right? That's why they enrolled. And so I basically try to throw them off the scent and, and make them question why they're there for the very first time with an encouragement to stick around for the right reasons. So here's what I share with the students there, and here's what I share with you this morning. Here's another quote from J.I. Packer's Knowing God. I believe it'll be on the screen behind us. To be preoccupied with getting theological knowledge as an end in itself, to approach Bible study with no higher a motive than a desire to know all the answers, is the direct route to a state of self-satisfied self-deception. We need to guard our hearts against such an attitude and pray to be kept from it. There can be no spiritual health without doctrinal knowledge, but it's equally true that there can be no spiritual health with it if it is sought for the wrong purpose and walked by the wrong standard. In this way, doctrinal study really can become a danger to spiritual life, and we today need to be on guard here. See, there's a big difference between knowledge about God and knowledge of God. And what Paul is commending for here as a a life that's fully pleasing to God is a life that grows in the knowledge of God. See, studying God as an end in itself will only bring about the former. But if we are after the latter, if we are after the knowledge of God, not just knowledge about God, means we don't just study 
to, to, to gather information, we study in a way that leads us to God himself, to know him, to trust him, to worship him, to obey him. See, this was the problem that Jesus encountered with the Pharisees in John chapter 5. He says, you study the scriptures and you know them well, but you don't understand that these are the scriptures that testify about me, and yet you refuse to come to me to have life. He says, you're missing the point of the Bible. The Bible's meant to lead you to relationship. It's meant to lead you to connection with Christ. It's not meant to be treated as an abstract book that you read on paper. It's meant to be paper leaping onto a person. We, we, get, we gather the information from the paper, but it leads us to a person. It leads us to relate to Jesus Christ. Now, we'll never know God exhaustively. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. We'll never get to the end of God, even in eternity. And this, is, this pursuit, therefore, keeps us humble, especially in this life where we'll just see through a glass darkly. But even though God has secret things he's not revealed to us, we'll talk about that in a couple weeks, and he's incomprehensible, he is truly knowable to the degree that he makes himself known. And he has made himself known, both in creation, in general, and especially in the revelation of Scripture. So our knowledge will be true and sufficient, even if it's only partial. So let me apply this quickly. How do we do this? How do we increase in the knowledge of God in such a way that it doesn't go bad on us, that it leads us to God? I think Ezra chapter 7 verse 10 provides a good template. Ezra is a model for us here. It's been a verse I've gone back to again and again and again in my own life, and I hope it serves you as well. Ezra 7.10 reads, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Notice what he does here. See, we must set our heart to study. He, he's studying from the heart. He's studying in relationship to God. He's not, he did, it doesn't just say, Ezra studied the Lord. It said he engaged his heart. He set his heart to study the law of the Lord, which means he was going to let the law of God speak to his own heart. He was going to let it address him. He wasn't just going to use it to teach other people. He was going to use it to teach himself. That's something you can always pray for me. Pray that for me, church. Pray that I will always set my heart to study the law of the Lord for the Lord first and myself second, then to you. Because only then will it be beneficial. I'm reminded of what my sister Donna Reed shared with me one time. She says she always enjoys hearing sermons that go through the hearts of her pastors first. And that's very, very important. And I am always encouraged by her example in that way. So we must set our heart to study. There must be intentionality and discipline to it. But we must study, as Ezra did, with a view to obedience. You see what he says? Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it. So our study will become warped once the goal becomes knowledge and not knowledge leading to obedience. So we're always after, what does this mean for my life? What does it mean for me in terms of this day, this week, this month? God, what would you have me to do in light of what you have shown me today about yourself? And then he passes it on 
So he says he sets his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and then to teach. See, we must not keep the knowledge of God to ourselves. We are blessed to be a blessing. What God gives to us, he intends to pass through us. So in order for us to live a life fully pleasing to God in the area of the knowledge of God, it means that we set ourselves to study his word in a way that leads us to him, in a way that leads us to obedience, and in a way that leads us to communicate that to other people. So in the church, we share with each other what God is doing in our lives. We share what we've learned from the word, how we're working that out, how we can pray for each other as we seek to work that out. That is critical to our life as a church. That's the engine, that's the gas that runs this whole thing, is the word of God dwelling in the people of God that spills out of our mouths and our lives into each other's lives so that we can pass it on and encourage one another and also pass it on to our neighbors, our family, our friends, our coworkers, and those who also need the knowledge of God just as we do. Test number three. We've seen, is my life bearing fruit in every good work? Number two, am I increasing? Is my mind increasing in the knowledge of God? Test number three, is my faith resilient and patient? Is my faith resilient and patient? Look at verse 11 of chapter 1 of Colossians. Paul says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Now, we have certainly been learning that lesson over the course of these last several months. <laughs> learning to endure things patiently. But it also means that we shouldn't be caught by surprise when life hurts. Our king is sovereign, and that sovereignty over us does not exempt us from pain. Living worthy of Jesus, worthy of the gospel, we must be enduring because life will not always go as we plan it, but it will always unfold as he planned it. So we can be patient. If the struggles and pains of life have made you impatient, and if you find your spiritual zeal fading, listen, you're not left alone in the fight. Because this verse assumes we get weary. It does. Look at it. It says, being strengthened with all power for all endurance and patience with joy. See, he doesn't say, get your act together, buck up, try harder, work harder spiritually, and endure. He doesn't say that. He says living a life pleasing to God means looking to God for strength. It means relying upon him to endure, relying upon him to be resilient. That's why I asked the question, is my faith resilient and patient? Not am I resilient and patient, but is my, is my confidence in God strong that he will keep me and preserve me? Now, I just want you to notice several things about this statement, which I think are so encouraging to us. Take note of the present tense of Paul's prayer. He says, being strengthened. All the time, every day, every moment. It's, it's not a one-time thing. It's not like, well, when I was converted, I got the strength shot. And I'm good for the rest of my life. No, he said, you need strength now. I need God's strength for the next sentence I'm going to preach. And you need it for the next breath you're going to take and the next moment lunch you're going to have and then in the afternoon and the evening and tomorrow morning and all week, we need God's strength. And the good news is it's given to you all the time. It's available to you repeatedly. You could render this phrase, may you be continually strengthened repeatedly. 
The point is that the strength and power we need is as available to us as the many and varied circumstances and challenges of life that we need it for. (laughs) There are no limitations. There are no exceptions to God's strength. As we encounter circumstances and challenges day after day, and as we confront challenges and difficulties, we're not alone. We are given continual spiritual strength by God. But I want you to notice, secondly, he does not say strengthen yourselves. I've already made this point, but I want to bend the nail over. The power is not inherently yours. It doesn't reside within you as yourself. It resides in you in a sense because it resides in you by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. But listen, it's not like you just need to flip a switch and then you get it released in your life. No, he says, and it's similar to what he says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. In other words, be strong by God. Let God strengthen you. Third, Now, there's something of some redundancy here, and I think Paul likes to do things like this. He likes to just pile on similar words to each other. Um, When when Paul is trying to express uh, something glorious, something wonderful, he'll say the synonyms. Like he'll say a synonym, and then something like it, and then something like it, and something like it, to pile up the impact. And he does that in verse 11 here. He says, being strengthened with all power. (laughs) He's saying, you're... I want you to be strengthened with strength. I want you to be strengthened or empowered with power. Now, he's trying to point out and reinforce the magnitude of what God is making available to us. He says, this is what God has given. He's given you power with power. And as if that weren't enough, he says, I want you to be strengthened with all power. This could mean power of every kind or the fullness of power or perhaps power in the highest degree to infinity and beyond. Quote Buzz Lightyear again. He gets a second reference. There's nothing second rate here. Paul prays as we should too for the best and most potent and most effective and wide-ranging power possible. And then he just throws one more phrase in there. He says, I want you to be strengthened, with all power according to his glorious might. Literally, the might of his glory. I mean, since the word might is a synonym for power, it may even be rendered according to the power of his majesty. Uh, or some, may you be empowered with all power according to his majestic power. I mean, it's just this strange, bizarre, seemingly crazy kind of phrase. But I want you to, I want you to notice what kind of power that actually is. Look at, look at Ephesians. Turn back just two letters, five or six pages in your Bible, to Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul uses this phrase again when he's praying for the Ephesian church. And he says in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 1, I want you to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power, so there's a similar phrase, toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that sounds like what we see in Colossians 1.11, but look at verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. Brothers and sisters, I want you to be encouraged by this reality. As you meet trials and you endure those trials with patience and joy, you are doing it 
with the very power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's that power that is sustaining you and upholding you and keeping you. What an amazing privilege that, that, that you would get to experience in this life. I know, you, I know often it just feels like I'm just moving on. I'm just trying to get through another day. But you're enduring. You're enduring. You're pressing on. You're pressing on in the difficulties of that job. You're pressing on in the difficulties of family life. You're pressing on in the marriage, loving each other, caring for one another, seeking forgiveness. You're pressing on in the difficulties of parenting, whether those be young kids or older kids. And all the various challenges that come to us in our lives, we are doing it with the very power that raised Christ from the dead. You are fellowshipping with Christ's sufferings in a way that you never maybe comprehended. But the very power that raised Christ from the dead is what is sustaining you in your trials. Now, look at the goal of this. Back to Colossians 1. The goal is for endurance and patience with joy. All endurance and patience with joy. So God has done all this supplied all this power so that we would endure everything with joy. Now, endurance has refer, refers to the persevering that we need to face the difficulties of life, but patience has to do with steadfastness that doesn't retaliate or grow bitter. See, events and trials and hardships tempt us to quit, but God grants endurance and people and criticism and injustice can tempt us to seek revenge, but God grants patience. And then he says that the source of this endurance and patience is joy. That the goal is joy. Now, the question, how do we get there? Practically, I mean, how do we access this power? He says, well, first of all, you access it by prayer, right? That's what he's doing here. He's praying. He's praying that they would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. So we pray that for ourselves, for our church, for our families, for those we love. We pray for those who are needing to endure and needing to exercise patience. God, may you, according to your glorious might, strengthen my brother, strengthen me, strengthen my family with all power for all endurance and patience with joy. May the very power that raised Christ from the dead be supplied to them to endure this trial. That's what we pray. We pray that. But then we also go to the scriptures. Think of Romans chapter 15, verse five, uh, verse 5, where Paul describes God as the God of all endurance. And then he says, how do we endure? Verse 4, that through the encouragement and comfort of the scriptures, we may have hope. So it's the scriptures and the truth and hope that the scriptures supply, coupled with prayer, that enables us to endure with joy. I'll give you this. Where you meet either yourself or a struggling brother or sister who is not enduring patiently with joy in their trials, they're not reading the scriptures, they're not praying. At least not in the way that God calls them to here. Those two things will be absent because those two things are the source of our endurance and patience with joy. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 16 speaks of being strengthened to comprehend the love of God in greater measure. And that knowledge comes through the scriptures. So in sum, there's no addiction that God's power can't break. There's no sin that God's power can't defeat. There's no task 
to which we are called that God's power can't fulfill. There's no fruit we're called to bear that God's power can't produce. And there's no rebellious child God's power can't restore. There's no broken marriage God's power can't reconcile. No physical disease God's power can't heal. God's power is unlimited, and we need to rely upon that for all endurance and patience with joy. And as we rely on that, we please him. See, God is not expecting you to live life on your own. If, I hope that you see that what it means to live fully pleasing to him is to live fully relying on him. <laughs> it's to look to him in faith, to rely upon him and his power, to seek his knowledge, to seek to grow in your understanding of him. It's all about relating to God. And that, that pursuit pleases the Lord. Fourthly and finally, and then we're going to wrap up. Test four. Is my mouth full of joyful gratitude? Is my life full of joyful gratitude? Here's what he says in verse 12, verse 11, the end of verse 11. All endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks. So that with joy there can be a little bit confusing in English because we wonder, does it refer back to the endurance and patience or does it refer to the way we give thanks? In other words, are we to endure and be patient under trials with joy or are we to give thanks with joy? Yes. <laughs> yes, they're both. Okay, I think Paul sandwiches it in there for that reason, that he intends that the endurance and patience to be with joy as well as the giving thanks. I mean, how can you give thanks without joy? Thanks. I mean, we, right, you've got to have a little bit of joy to give thanks for something. So obviously giving thanks is, is, is joyful as well. But our mouths should be full of joyful gratitude. On one hand, and gratitude to, to God reveals that we have a soul-rotting idolatry present. Think about Romans chapter 1, verse 21, where unbelievers refuse to give thanks to God. They just refuse. They will not give Him thanks. Or Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, talks about uh, thanklessness being coupled with idolatry. On the other hand, when we have a grateful, heartfelt joy in Christ and a gratitude to the Father, our souls are very healthy. And we're living in a way that pleases God. I mean, if somebody supplies... We're going to get ready to consider all the reasons we had to be thankful here in the conclusion of the sermon. But, I mean, if someone supplies you with a salvation as great as what we have in Christ, and someone supplies you with power to endure all the difficulties of life, and someone opens themselves up who's infinitely beautiful and infinitely wonderful, and they say, know me, and then they say, I want you to live a life that's meaningful and purposeful and full of fruit and lasts into eternity. And we say, yeah, I'm not very thankful for that. <laughs> I mean, thankful is the most natural response to everything that Paul said so far, everything that he's praying for the Colossian church, everything that we're praying this morning as we preach this. That bearing fruit and increasing in the knowledge of God and being strengthened, these are all reasons to give thanks. But he gives for more. And I want us to camp here and then we'll close. Notice what he tells us to give thanks for. First of all, giving thanks to the Father. First of all, verse 12, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. So the first reason we give thanks is we're qualified. It is so good to be qualified. <laughs> it's so good to know that's in the past tense. Isn't it? Brother, sister in Christ... You're qualified. You've already received the future inheritance of the saints in life. He has qualified you to share in it. You don't have to wonder if you're going to get there. There it is. We're not living lives 
We're not trying to please God so that we qualify for God's kingdom. We have been declared worthy in Christ. And we are already qualified and now we're called to live up to it. Here's what Sam Storm says. Whatever feelings of inadequacy or sense of shame or depths of despair may have crippled you till now, God has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. If you find yourself saying, I'm not up to the task, I'm a miserable failure, I'm a hell-deserving wretch, I don't deserve to stand in God's presence, the only thing I should inherit is death, God now says to those who are in Christ, qualified, forgiven, adequate in Jesus, righteous in my Son, Come and receive and enjoy your inheritance together with all the saints in the life-giving, soul-cleansing light of my kingdom. See, in Christ, brothers and sisters, we are qualified for an inheritance of light. This is promised land language. But the emphasis here is on brilliance, not geography. God is light. He's the Father of lights. The Son is the light of God's glory. So to live in the presence of the King, to dwell in the presence of Christ, means night will be no more, the sun will be no more, because we will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be our light, Revelation 22.5. So this is the ultimate will of God, the will above all other wills, that we should enjoy forever the glaring radiance of God's presence. This is the inheritance of the saints in light. It's God. But to get it, we must be qualified. And in Christ, you are. And if you're outside of Christ this morning, you can be by turning from your sin and trusting in Christ alone. Second, delivered. We're not just qualified, we're delivered. Look at what he says in verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, from the domain of Satan. Domain is an active power of entry that Satan exerts over those who belong to him. There are only two realms in which all of humankind lives in. 1 John 5, verse 19 says, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Whoever believes the gospel, though, according to Acts 26, 18, God enables to turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that we may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus. It's by turning to Christ that we are forgiven of our sin and placed among the sanctified. And therefore, we are released from darkness, and we are released from the power of Satan. Fourthly, transferred. Paul says that you have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. We are given citizenship in a new kingdom. We're not just rescued and put in no man's land. We're rescued and we're brought into the kingdom of God. We're given safe transport to another nation. We are transferred... Um, uprooted out of one kingdom and planted safely in another, namely the kingdom of God's Son, Jesus. Fourthly and finally, we are redeemed. Look at verse 14. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We have forgiveness in Christ fully, now and forever. It's all been achieved through his blood. Now let me conclude with this word from Tony Rinke who wrote an excellent article um, about these verses. And I want to conclude with a quote from him. He says, This story shapes our lives because the only way we can pattern our own life and thoughts and behaviors according to the will of God is to see and appreciate what Jesus has done for us in the past and what he intends to do for us in the future. For every other detail of the Christian life to find its place in our lives, it has to be set in this eternal narrative. 
So this is why I begin here. If we don't get this, we don't have the motivation and the desire to live a life fully pleasing to God. See, there's going to be a lot over the course of the next several weeks, there's going to be a lot of, this is what pleases God, this is what doesn't please God, this is what pleases God, this is what doesn't. And if we don't have this as the overarching narrative, that we're qualified, that we're delivered, that we're transferred, that we're redeemed, that we have, we are growing in the knowledge of God, that we have his power available to us to strengthen us for all of these things, then we'll just feel defeated and, and we won't even give a, have a heart to try. But listen, brother, sister, you are in a sovereign storyline of a king of all grace who has adopted you into his royal family and given you an unspeakably high calling. You are filled with dignity. You are a child of the king. You belong to a chosen race and a royal priesthood and a holy nation and a people for his own possession so that you would proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You are the children of God. You shine as lights in the world. You are children of the light, children of the day. You are not of the darkness. You were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. You're not junk. You're royalty. Let's live that way. Not evil royalty that just seeks to get and get and get and get, but recognizing all we have, we give. Give it all away, just like our king did. We've been delivered from darkness. We have a blazing glory that we're going to inherit. And in between this past grace and future grace, as we walk as children of the king, we are a light in the darkness of this world. Here's what John Flavel said. He says... When you walk worthy, the apostle does not mean you walk meritoriously. But you walk with the decorum that befits a Christian. J.I. Packer says, It's no part of justifying faith to lose sight of the fact that God the King wants his royal children to live lives worthy of their paternity and position. See, he says, those he justifies, it's no... It's no it's not inconsistent with that to say, live up to that. <laughs> live like just people. Live like righteous people. I've made you righteous in my son. Now live righteous. So Jesus calls us, brothers and sisters, to live a life of royal dignity, children of light, so the king's defeated enemies and his insurrectionists will see in us the supreme and undeniable worth of the king. The dignity of our behavior and our attitudes and our words and our work all speak to the worth of the king. And this, in the end, is the whole point of living a life fully pleasing to God anyway. Let's pray together. Father, as our music team comes now to lead us in a closing song, we are grateful to you for the privilege of being called your children, for being those who have been qualified for the inheritance of the saints in life, for being delivered and transferred and forgiven and clothed in your righteous robes. Lord, this is a glorious and a high position and privilege that we possess all by grace, not because we've earned it, but because Christ has earned it. And we, by grace, have believed and turned from our life of self and sovereign rule to the life of loving lordship to our King, Jesus. And so we pray, along with Paul, as we conclude this sermon, that you, O oh God, would help us to bear fruit in every good work, that you would help us to increase 
in the knowledge of God and having all patience and endurance that we would, we would endure patiently with your power, your glorious, almighty resurrection power at work within us to endure all patiently with joy and that our mouths would continually be full of thanksgiving to you for all that you have done for us and will do for us in the name of our King, the Lord Jesus. Amen.